to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. When we think of God's wrath, we need to understand that it's the refusal to repent of sin that brings about the seals and the trumpets and the bulls and ultimately hell. You see, here's the truth. Anyone who ends up in hell, and there's a real hell, Jesus said that there was, will have, in a sense, put themselves there. That's the truth of the matter. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Revelation. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Revelation chapter 16, verse 1, in a message titled, The Wrath of the Lamb. Now, here's Pastor Brian. In 2007, Christopher wrote a book called God is Not Great. And as a result of writing that book, he decided that he wanted to go out and he wanted to take on Christians publicly, head on in debate. And in the course of doing this, there was a man who uh, obliged him of his desire, a man named Larry Taunton. And Larry has an organization called the Fixed Point Foundation. And Larry began to set up debates between Christopher Hitchens and um, leading Christian who would speak on behalf of the faith. And so these debates ensued. And Hitchens found, to his surprise, in the course of these debates, two things. Number one, the Christians weren't as dumb as he thought they were. And number two, they were much nicer than he expected them to be. And so in the course of all of this, uh, he became actually quite close friends with a few solid Christian men. And Larry Taunton, who is the author of this book, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens, this book is the account of Larry's personal friendship with Christopher. And in the book, here's the amazing thing. Now, from the outside observation, even from, from Christians, Christopher was diagnosed with cancer in 2010, And when that announcement was made public, many Christians said, and understandably, aha, God is finally dealing with this guy. God is showing Christopher who's really in charge. This is God's judgment on Christopher's life. Many Christians said that and thought that. And understandably, because this guy was a professional blasphemer. He made his fortune off of going around the world and blaspheming God. That's what he did. But you know, there's another side to the story, and here's the amazing thing. Prior to his diagnosis of cancer, he had already developed friendships with some of these Christians. He was already intrigued and somewhat impressed with what he saw in them. After his cancer diagnosis, he began to more personally inquire. And the book here, like I said, is is the story of his relationship with Larry and two, uh, specifically two trips that they took together privately. And during those trips, among other 
encounters and relations. During those trips, specifically, they studied the Gospel of John together. So here's the amazing thing to me. Just like we're talking about, God is slow to anger. He's plenteous in mercy. He waits. He puts up with so many things uh, where we would think that uh, God should have struck this guy dead ages ago. God is not only not striking him dead, but God is extending, if you will, an olive branch to him. And that's really what's happening during these few last few years of Hitchens' life, and particularly during the last 16 months of his life. God is extending uh, an olive branch to him through this friendship and this relationship with Larry Taunton. And I, I wanted to read you just one little portion of the book here. And this is right at, at the very end of the story. But it's, it's quite powerful. It's very moving. So Larry's describing, they had already previously gone through the Shenandoah Valley. And during that time, they had studied John's gospel together. This is some months later. This is a few months before Hitchens died. They were together once again. They had just debated one another in Billings, Montana. And the following day, they were uh, into Wyoming and there in Yellowstone National Park. And here's uh, the scene as Larry describes it. He says, the skies are clear. The autumn leaves are translucent in the early afternoon sun, and the road ahead of us is open. As we crest one of these old rolling mountains, we see unfolding before us a valley of sublime beauty. In a strong, clear voice, Christopher is reading from the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, reaching the 25th and 26th verses. His face lights up with recognition. He stops. I know this one too, he says. I didn't recall its connection with the resurrection of Lazarus. It's a great verse, I add, sensing we, had, we have reached a defining moment. Yes, Dickens thought so, he says. And then, taking his reading glasses off, he turns to me and asks, Do you believest thou this, Larry Taunton? His sarcasm is evident, but it lacks its customary force. I do but you already knew that I did. The question is, do you believe us thou this, Christopher Hitchens? As of searching for a clever repost, he hesitates and speaks with unexpected transparency. I'll admit that it is not without appeal to a dying man. Now, Larry goes on and he says this. At the end of his life, Christopher's search had brought him willingly, if secretly, to the altar. Precisely what he did there, no one knows. Indeed, no one can know. As Christians and atheists vied for his soul, the greatest struggle was within Christopher himself. With his wits undimmed, one wonders what prayers Christopher might have sent up as he approached his inevitable end. If he died an atheist, the epitaph reads with a gloomy finality, Christopher Hitchens, 1949 through 2011. This is how some would have it. But I happen to know that Jesus's words in John 11, 25 and 26 reverberated in his mind, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die Believest thou this? It's fascinating. 
It's astounding. And to me, the amazing thing, and as Larry is very clear on this, he, is not, he did not write this book saying that Christopher Hitchens became a Christian. He writes this book saying that Christopher Hitchens was a man who was searching. Christopher Hitchens sought out fellowship or friendship with these Christian men, and he was willing to engage with them in conversation about the gospel. He retained publicly his persona as the world's most notorious atheist. But as, as Taunton says from the beginning of the book to the end, Christopher kept two sets of books. There were those public books and there were those private books. And he personally, as a friend, holds out hope that in that last few moments that Christopher understanding what was at stake and, and you know, what the truth was about Jesus, that, that he perhaps did humble himself before him. But of course, we will never know. But the, my point is this. My point is God, who many of us would have thought would have just sent a bolt of lightning to rid himself of this pesky human who went around the world blaspheming him, far from doing that, was extending an olive branch to him even to his dying day. So it's, it's an amazing thing. But it, like I said, it illustrates the point that I'm making here. God is slow to anger. God is not looking to judge people. God is looking for the opposite. And whenever this topic comes up, we need to understand this because it's gonna come up. In our culture today, this is what people are talking about when it comes to God. So often, this is the first thing people say, oh, I'd never believe in a God who's gonna send somebody to hell. So we have to understand the truth about the wrath of God. Truth number one, it's not his first desire. It is not really his desire at all. His desire is that none perish, all come to repentance. But is there a wrath of God that will be poured out? Absolutely there is. And history shows us that God has already on occasion poured out his wrath and revelation tells us that he will do it again. Let me give you just a few quick historical examples. Uh, the most obvious and the first one would be the flood in the time of Noah. That was God pouring out his wrath upon a rebellious, wicked world. We read there in Genesis chapter six that the earth had become filled with violence and corruption and the imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. And so God obliterated all of humanity with the exception of one family. That was the first demonstration of God's wrath. But the interesting thing there is that, do you know there's 1800 years between creation and the flood? So there's this long period of time where God is suffering uh, and, and uh, long with the, the sin and the wickedness of man. When God instructs Noah to build the ark, you know what he says Noah, uh, to Noah? He says, I I'm gonna give 120 years. So 120 years between the time of the instruction to build and the completion of the ark in which people could have repented. Nobody did. So that's one. Fast forward. The flood comes Humanity is destroyed with the exception of Noah. Him and his family come forth. The earth begins to be repopulated. Uh, let's, let's fast forward to Egypt. Israel 
God has chosen Abraham. His descendants have gone into Egypt. They're there uh, being oppressed by the Egyptians. God sends Moses, and there is a judgment upon Egypt and Pharaoh. But when you read the story, you have to remember this. God gives Pharaoh 10 opportunities to repent before he finally brings his, his a complete judgment upon Egypt. And so from there, fast forward, we come to the land of Canaan, the Canaanites. The Israelites are, are going to go in and inherit this land. And Joshua and the Israelites are going to be God's instrument of judgment to wipe out the Canaanites. Just, just as the flood was God's instrument in the days of Noah, so Joshua and the Israelites are his instrument in, the, in those days. And they come into Canaan and they wipe out the Canaanites. But if you go back in Genesis, you find that God told Abraham that this would happen. And there God said that there would be a 400-year window in which he would give the Canaanites an opportunity to repent. After 400 years, they did not do it. Judgment finally came. And so as we go through, we come to Israel. They come into the land. They briefly obey God. Then they rebel against him. They break all of his commandments uh, continually. They worship the idols. They do everything God told them not to do. And God finally judges them, but not without numerous warnings and numerous calls to repentance. And so the northern kingdom is led into captivity by the Assyrians. And then the same thing happens to the southern kingdom of Judah. But again, not without warnings, not without opportunities to repent. And Nebuchadnezzar comes and he destroys Jerusalem. And then God allows the people to go back into the land. Then Jesus comes and he's the Messiah and he offers them salvation and they reject it. And then in 70 AD, the Romans come. But my point is this, God gives all of this time for repentance because that's what he really wants. So that's judgment in the past. Is there judgment in the present? I don't know that we could look at any particular situation anywhere in the world today and say that is, with absolute certainty, that is a judgment of God upon that situation. I don't think we can do that. Even with somebody like Hitchens, where people thought that's a judgment of God, that cancer is a judgment of God upon him. Well, why is, why is it only upon him? There are other atheists. There are other atheists who are just as vocal. So we have to be careful when there are certain things that happen in our world where there's catastrophes that take place and so forth. Christians sometimes are really quick to jump in and say, hey, that's, that's a judgment of God upon that person or upon that place. I don't think we can know that because personally, I think that uh, the days of God's direct judgment, like in the flood, like in Egypt, like with the Canaanites, and the direct judgment that will come in the tribulation, that is not what we're experiencing today. God's judgment today is more indirect. According to Paul in Romans chapter one, the way God judges currently is that he allows men to live as they will and then to reap the consequences of their choices. God gives them up. But there is a future judgment and that's what Revelation 16 is about. Isaiah 13, let me read this to you from Isaiah 13. This is Isaiah's description of what we read in Revelation 16, without the details that we get in Revelation 16. Wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp, every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. I will punish the world for its evil 
and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud, and I will lay low the haughtiness of the tyrants. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold. Therefore, I will shake heaven, the heavens, and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. That is Isaiah's description. God speaking to Isaiah. That is his description of Revelation 16, the culmination of the wrath that is yet to come in the future. So God has judged in history. God will judge in the future. God does not want to judge. That's not his first choice. His first choice is to forgive. He's slow to anger. He patiently waits, but there's a point where he has no other option. But there's one other place where God's wrath was manifested that we must consider before we close. And the other place where God's wrath was manifested, this is where we see most clearly God's wrath demonstrated And believe it or not, it's in the cross. The cross of Jesus is the greatest demonstration of God's wrath that there is. Have you ever wondered why Christ was so brutally treated and why he was crucified and suffered so cruelly? I mean, you know, the prophecy, of course, is that uh, the Messiah is going to come into the world. He's going to die for sin. His blood has to be shed. All of that is stated in the prophecies. But surely there was a more humane way that it could have been done. But if we consider that it was the wrath of God that Jesus was experiencing, it's then that we understand why he suffered the way he did. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the reality is he was being punished in the place of sinners. Man's only hope of escaping the wrath of God is to come to the cross and have his sins forgiven. The cross speaks, listen, the cross speaks of the love of God and the wrath of God simultaneously. That's the message of the cross. It's both a message of God's love and it is a message of God's wrath. It is a declaration of his love to those who repent and receive his mercy It is a warning of his wrath against sin to those who refuse. Now, here's the thing that I want to bring home. And again, I want to draw your attention back to Revelation 16. The wrath of God that is poured out in the seals, the trumpets, and here in Revelation 16, the bull judgments actually should never have to take place because all those sins were punished when Jesus died on the cross. You see, this is the the tragic irony. These things that we're reading about in Revelation, they shouldn't even have to take place. And the reason they do have to take place is because man rejects the pardon that God offers, and in rejecting the pardon, the only other alternative is judgment. Let's just say there was a a criminal who was genuinely a criminal, and let's say that the governor or the president decided to pardon them. Let's just say they were on death row. Let's say they were were up for execution. And the the president, the governor, whoever it might be, they, they pardon the person. And so the warden, the authorities from the prison, they come and they tell them, you've been pardoned. You're free to go. 
And the person says, well, you know, I don't care. I don't want to be pardoned. I'm, I'm just fine just the way I am, you know? And I, I'm just going to, I'm not going to receive the pardon. Okay, well, what are we going to do? Well, if they don't receive the pardon, they're obviously going to go through with the, the sentence, the execution. And, and in a sense, that's exactly what's happened with the human race. We're all guilty, but God punished those sins in Jesus. And now he offers to all humanity a pardon. But for those who say, well, I don't want the pardon. I don't need the pardon. I don't care about the pardon. I'm not interested. What else can God do? So you see, when we think of God's wrath, we need to understand that it's the refusal to repent of sin that brings about the seals and the trumpets and the bulls and ultimately hell. You see, here's the truth. Anyone who ends up in hell, and there's a real hell, Jesus said that there was, but remember, he said it wasn't prepared with man in mind. It was made for the devil and his angels, but men will be there. But anyone who ends up there will have, in a sense, put themselves there. That's the truth of the matter. You know, on the one hand, you can say God does not uh, send people to hell. They send themselves. On the other hand, of course, you could say that God does send them there as well, but he sends them there because that's the choice that they have made. And we have to keep that in mind. Now, Paul says to those who have put their faith in Christ, God has not appointed us to wrath. But you know, you could, you could expand that and you could in a sense say to the whole world, God has not appointed the world to wrath. Jesus said, as we read there in John 3, 16 and 17 and 18, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But that's the only way to be saved is through him. And if one is to reject that offer of pardon, that gift of salvation, then there is nothing left but to meet God in that wrath that he reluctantly but certainly will pour out. And so let's understand that for our own uh, spiritual well-being Let's understand it so we might give a response to people who challenge with the idea that there could be such a thing as a God of judgment. And let's remember that God's heart is first and foremost to forgive. And let's also remember from the lessons of history and the recent history of Christopher Hitchens, God is looking to pardon sinners. That's what he's looking to do. And, you know, quite honestly, as I read that book over the past couple days, I thought, you know, I myself have been very swift at times to want to call down fire and brimstone on people. I myself at times have, have thought those very things, you know, that this person is, you know, they should be judged. And it just, it just kind of gave me a check to be careful about that. Because the very person that we might be thinking that God wants to zap and obliterate could be the very person that God is looking to send believers into their life to appeal to them maybe one last time to respond to his grace. That's what happened with Hitchens. And I think that's what is possible and probable for many. So let's not forget that ourselves.
For the month of July, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity by Nick Cady. How can we believe in a God who allows good people to die and let bad people live? How can we believe in a God who allows children to be abused without any earthly consequences? And if God is so good and loving, then why do bad things happen? Questions just like these are just some of the barriers that keep people from embracing Christianity. Maybe one of these questions is exactly what keeps you from embracing Christianity. Well, in his book, The God I Won't Believe In, Nick Cady addresses these and other topics that are hindering many today. If you want to challenge some of the most common barriers to Christianity in today's culture or face the barriers on your own, this book will help you understand what the Bible says about these and other topics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order The God I Won't Believe In by Nick Cady. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Revelation. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.